This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. At the age of seven, John Demartini was told that he had a learning disability and would never read, write, or communicate normally. At 14, he dropped out of school and left his Texas home and headed for California for the California coast. By 17, he had ended up in Hawaii surfing the waves of Oahu's famous North Shore where he almost died from strychnine poisoning. His road to recovery led him to Dr. Paul Bragg, the 90-year-old man who would change his life forever by instructing him to repeat one simple affirmation every single day. That affirmation, as you already know, is I am a genius and I apply my wisdom. Today he lectures, teaches, and consults internationally with a mission to inspire wisdom, fulfillment, leadership, and healing in individuals who desire to achieve their full potential. His life's work is the study and exploration of over 200 different disciplines in pursuit of what he calls universal principles of life, which we're going to discuss uh, in depth tonight. Founder of the Concourse of Wisdom and creator of the Quantum Collapse Process, Dr. John F. Martini's understanding of the power of love is reshaping psychology as we know it. His revolutionary personal transformation methodologies help tens of thousands and have helped tens of thousands, and I think that's a low number, of individuals find greater order within their lives by enabling them to live with greater clarity, certainty, and presence. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. John F. Martini, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Uh, I uh, Thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, well, you wrote it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. So let's talk. Let's get into some nuts and bolts here, Doctor uh, Demartini. Uh, and if, if 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 I may, can I just call you John? You certainly may. <laughs> uh, specifically, we're talking about the quantum collapse process and the breakthrough experience. And of course, the breakthrough experience is an actual uh, event, but it's also a book. And if you don't have it, I would like for you to uh, go to uh, Amazon.com and 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 pick up a copy of that phenomenal piece of work uh, that really started uh, the revolution of of uh, the quantum collapse process. In this book, uh, John, you talk about uh, on page 14, the universe may be nothing more than light at many different frequencies. What are, what, are, what are you trying to say there? What are you, what are you meaning there? 
Well, what I mean by that is if we take our physical body and we break it down and put it through a reductionism, it becomes systems, organs, tissues, cells, organelles, molecules, atoms, and eventually subatomic particles. Mm -hmm. And each atom and subatomic particle is convertible into light. And therefore, our physical body is simply, really, resonations of light. Our mind also has the potential to train, like if you get on a telephone and you get and talk to somebody, you're putting an audio signal and modulating a carrier wave across the world, and somehow, in an invisible wave, electromagnetic wave, your information and your intelligent information is stored on a wave, a particle of light as it transports. Mm -hmm. So somehow... We physically and even metaphysically, our body and mind, um, are actually just vibrations. And light being the um, most powerful metaphor, I think, has real substance to it. It's not just a metaphor. Uh, the idea of enlightenment or brilliant or bright or something of this nature. So, so our physical nature is that way. And the whole universe is bathed. For every atom in the universe, there's about 5 to 10 billion particles of light. So mm -hmm. we're bathed in a universe of light and we are receptive and broadcasting uh, stations of light, in a sense. Well, one of the things that was very uh, uh, enlightening for me uh, and intriguing at the same time, uh, when you talked about every atom comes, uh, if you will, full quantum, both positively charged and negatively charged, uh, how does that relate to um, our spiritual evolution? Well, just as it says in uh, atomic physics, every atom absorbs and emits a full quantum of light. And that includes not only the atom, but the molecule, and all the way up in a reverse reductionism of the body, all the way to our body, we absorb and emit light. And light itself, it can be reduced to positive and negatively charged particles. Particles and nanoparticles are called positrons and negatrons. Mm -hmm. And when they're merged together, we make light. When they're separated, we make matter. How we say energy converts into matter when we dualize it, and matter converts back into energy and light when we synthesize it. And as the ancient uh, Egyptians used to say, energy without matter is expressionless, and matter without energy is motionless. Mm -hmm. And so we're really just those two things, energy matter, and we're really just light in its various unconditional and conditional forms. And so in a sense, we communicate by that. We, we mediate by that. And that's our essence. And our psychology is really a reflection of that. We have an unconditional state of psychology, which I call love and light, and a conditional state, which I call emotions, which are like the positive and negative charges of matter. Mm -hmm. So when we are positively and negatively charged up emotionally, we have gravitational baggage like matter. And when we uh, transcend that baggage and we return back to light, we actually lighten ourselves up. So. The metaphor is not more. It's more than a metaphor. It's actually the way we absorb and emit experience. Mm -hmm. You say on page 26, every time you splinter yourself into positive and negative emotions, you scatter your light, dissipate your energy potential, and disempower your true and centered being. What do you mean by that? How does that work? Well, if we walk down the street and we see somebody that we become infatuated with and we assume more positive charges than negatives mm -hmm. and uh, we get elated, uh, we can actually become so blinded by our infatuation that that person can consume space and time in our mind and we become, in a sense, compulsively addicted to them. Mm -hmm. We won't be able to get them out of our mind. If we try to go to work, we'll be preoccupied by that infatuation. So, too, in, in reverse, if we were to go down the street and see something we despised or resented and saw more negative than positive charges, 
then what would happen is that they would consume our space and time in our mind again, and we'd have them run our lives. Only when we have a balanced perspective uh, are we liberated by that truth, because in nature there's always a wholeness, and every, every time we evaluate it by projecting our values onto things and only seeing one side and polarize it and become emotional, we become trapped in a sense and in bondage to the misperception. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is when we equilibrate our mind and bring it back into balance, we liberate ourselves from the baggage of emotion, and we're able to see things as they are and whole, mm-hmm. and that enlightenment helps us love and realize that there's really nothing but love and all else is illusion. Now, when did you develop... Um how, how old is the breakthrough experience and the quantum collapse process at this point? Well, the breakthrough experience I started in 1988. Uh, it came to me as sort of a vision on the flight to Montreal to speak uh, in Quebec, coming out of Texas. And uh, that uh, was when I first initiated the program. Mm-hmm. And then the quantum collapse process, also known as the Demartini Method, was initiated along with that. Actually, I started to precurse it. Um, clinically about two years earlier, and I started working on it back when I was 18. Mm-hmm. So this is 33 years ago. Wow. I, I came across a German philosopher named Leibniz, Wilhelm Leibniz, and he said in his discourse on metaphysics, in one of the chapters on what he called divine perfection, he said that there is in the universe a divine order, as David Bohm describes an implicate order, and a divine beauty and a divine love, and few people ever get to know it, but those that do, their lives are changed forever. Mm-hmm. So I set out, since the apes that they're surrounded by, and helped them find that they're really bathed in love and don't realize it. And so that's what the, the it emerged really at 18, but didn't become clinical until about uh, about 20 years ago. And now I've, been, I've shared it now with literally people in 52 countries and who knows where else. Oh, my gosh, that's incredible. Now... Um, based upon the law of symmetry and quantum physics, um, positive and negative tra- uh, charges, uh, posit- uh, was it positrons, uh, which are positive experiences, versus electrons, which are negative ex- experiences, what is the, what is the goal of tri- How does one, in your language, collapse uh, these positive and negative uh, emotions uh, that you know, really, are, uh, we're chemical, and it's just second nature. How does one break free from that? Well, in a sense, that uh, I always say that the quality of our lives are based on the quality of the questions we ask. Mm-hmm. And if we ask questions that bring equanimity and equilibrium to our perceptions, we liberate our minds from the baggage and bondage of the emotional states that, uh, in a sense, weigh us down. And we liberate ourselves with the truth of love. Mm-hmm. So what, what the, the method is, is basically asking questions that bring balance. So if you perceive a negative event, you're basically asking questions, what are the positives in this event? Mm-hmm. And if you're seeing a positive event, you're asking, what are the negatives? You're trying to equilibrate it. Because any time you have an imbalanced perspective, anything you have that imbalanced perspective on runs your life until it's brought back to balance. Now, this is, uh, you know, how fascinating is this? Because what I really want people to get and I think sometimes when I first was introduced to it, I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, if I think, po- you know, so most of us, we're, we, you know, we come from this uh, PMA, positive mental attitude mindset that, we're, you know, everything is supposed to be positive. Everything that we do, we're trying to get to a positive state. And when actuality, what you're saying is every positive state, when it, it is emotionally based, has the opposing side. Yes, well, what I found is quite uh, interesting because when a person is depressed, they are observing their current reality and comparing it to a fantasy reality about how they think it should be or supposed to be. Mm-hmm. They're basically injecting imperatives into their life by some uh, perceived authority or possibly in some fantasy state. 
So what they're doing is they're comparing your reality to what they think it should be instead of identifying the order that it's in. Mm-hmm. And so in actuality, what they think is a depressive state actually has an elation state also. Their mind is always full quantum and always has both sides. And so what we do is we tend to think that there's only one side, but in actuality there's both. And what I've done is I've helped people see these two sides, and I've helped people um, acknowledge it, and, and it's extremely liberating. And what's actually interesting, the research that I've been doing in the last decade has pretty well established that positive thinking uh, is necessary when you're perceiving negatives more than positives. You need positives to bring it back into equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And negative thinking, or skeptical thinking, if you will, is necessary when you're manic. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing only positive. See, what happens is whenever we're, we, we, we divide ourselves up into the self-righteous and self-raunchous personas, mm-hmm. we build ourselves up with pride, we knock ourselves down in shame and guilt. When we build ourselves up, we tend to set goals that are too big and too short of time frames, and lead to us, or we lead ourselves to self-defeat. And then if we set our goals, if we're in a self-depreciated state, we tend to set too small a goals and too long a time frame. Mm-hmm. Negative thinking that we need, that we can't get rid of, even no matter how hard we try, is actually an intuition trying to reveal to us to set true goals and not exaggerate them. So to try to eliminate that part of ourselves is, is actually uh, is pointless, because what it will do is actually those, those so-called negative thoughts are actually balancing our fantasies and our exaggerations instead of helping us get true. Um, what, we, what these negative sides are doing is actually equilibrating us. We need these two sides. The key is that we sometimes get compulsively addicted to exaggerating our fantasies and what we want out of our life instead of setting real objectives that are from our heart, that str- have strategies that fulfill them, and train ourselves to live what we say. Mm-hmm. Is it is it easy for people to uh, misconstrue or, 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 or not be able to differentiate between positive versus the emotion of love and bliss or full quantum? Well, I say that uh, many people have confused what love is. Mm -hmm. I've actually taken tens of thousands of people through this process, this Demartini method, and had them have the experience of what is a really graced state, a really Mm -hmm. inspired state of love. And many people have said that they thought they knew what love was until they've had this state. It's very profound. Mm-hmm. And what most people are confusing as love is actually an infatuation in dopamine and encephalon release in the brain. It's actually a form of addiction. And so what they've done is they haven't distinguished between what is true love, which is, which is a center point, and what is infatuation. In that center point, that love awakens a knowing and a certainty and a presence and a grace and the infatuation creates an addiction and compulsion that makes us have a broken heart when that which we're addicted to is, is relieved from us or mm-hmm. released from us. Mm-hmm. So that distinction is very important. And I say that the infatuation confuses love is, is actually emotion. But love is a synthesis and synchronicity of all complementary opposite emotions. It's a balanced state. So is that your definition of love? I define love in the program, the Breakthrough Experience program, as a synthesis meaning a synthesis of all company opposites, and a synchronicity, that they actually occur together. Just like a magnet, if you try to chop it in half and get one pole of the magnet, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. There's always, now if you chop it in half, two magnets with both sides. Mm-hmm. If you chop it again, even at the speed of light, you still have four magnets. And this is the way nature is. Nature does not create monopoles. It is always balanced with its opposite. And man, with his value system, projects his values in it and misses out on the magnificent balance and sees what it wants to see by its filter, and then gets polarized into emotions that then entangle it and teach it a lesson to look for both sides. Now, now you say that anything you don't love, you'll try to change it uh, into what you think would be better. 
uh, but your idea of better may be an illusion. Well, if you ask, literally, if you were to have a million people in an audience and have them all describe the first or seven, uh, first seven things that they think are good or right, you would find out that they're like fingerprints, that no two people would ever have the same list. And so what happens is when an event occurs in quantum physics, it's always neutral until somebody measures it and evaluates it. Mm -hmm. The second they do, they project and filter their values onto it. When they do, um, they then label it. And that label is never true. It's simply uh, a label that they give it, and then they, of course, react to that label, where somebody else with a completely opposite perspective will label it the opposite and, of course, be in opposition. So the key in life is to see that all things are neutral, which is an unconditional loving state, and realize that anything that we judge runs our life until we're brought back to the balance and love it. So then uh, you can't really have happiness without the emotion of sadness, without the balancing of the opposite. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the comedy and tragedy masks of the theater are the cover-ups of the true heart. Mm -hmm. And so I always say that. I have a new book that I'm working on called I Gave Up Happiness that Made Me Too Sad. <laughs> and, I, and what I'm attempting to do is because so many people become so addicted to that one side that their lives, when un-experiencing un, uh, un that, basically feel the opposite. I had an example of a gentleman that went off to Club Med for three days to meet his buddies down there. And when he got there, he was checking in, and he met this beautiful girl with these uh, nice uh, proportions, mathematical proportions. And it was interesting, as he chatted with her, he said, let's meet at the bar, mm -hmm. at the, uh, in the, the pool bar. And they chatted for a bit and had a few drinks and then eventually went to his room and they spent the next three days, uh, you know, exploring the potentials of the Kundalini, as they say. <laughs> and, and what was interesting is that in this passionate three days of uh, ecstatic romance, uh, during that time he actually omitted the telephone calls that his buddies were trying to reach him. He didn't answer the door when they knocked. He, they, he basically omitted them for three days because he was in such a so-called ecstatic state. Mm -hmm. When he left there, his buddies had kind of felt, uh, you know, disowned. His girlfriend back home was disowned. He went back and, anyway, eight years or nine years went by, ten years went by, he got married. And then he came to me in the breakthrough experience and he said, I'm in a marriage. I don't feel fulfilled. I feel, you know, incomplete. I'm kind of bored. And I said, what are you comparing it to? And up came that fantasy. See, the, the mm. problems with the extreme ecstatic states is they set up an endorphin addiction, and we go want to go back to it, and if we don't, we're depressed. Mm. So those moments that are extreme highs are actually inducing long-term gradual delays and, and kind of a dull, low moments. And I always say that anything that's imbalanced in our life affects our life, and anything that's balanced frees our life. Mm -hmm. And so I try to teach people how to free our lives so we're inspired in life and not elated in life, and there's a difference. You talk about time uh, consisting of both past and future, uh, neither of which can be in the now. You say, you know, the past holds memory uh, and the future holds imagination. How does that um, work in terms of being emotionally based? Are we constantly uh, calculating new information based upon our past and then taking that information and then uh, pushing it toward our imagination of what we would like in our future? Yes, well, hold on one second, Dr. DiMartini. researched in the breakthrough experience and worked Hold on one second, Dr. DiMartini. Uh, can we have a clean call? So we hear someone out there talking. Could you please press 6 to mute your line so that we can have a clean call and Dr. John F. DiMartini can answer the questions? Thank you. Go ahead, Doc. Okay. What happens is, and what I've observed working with people, is that, and this is going to be somewhat shocking, and, and since you relate to shock, this will be <laughs> shocking. What we found is that when a person is actually having a memory, 
they're actually uh, isolating a moment when they had perceived more pleasure than pain or more pain than pleasure. Mm. And they're either in that nightmare or fantasy. Mm-hmm. And these are in varying degrees, from very, very slight to very extreme. And the same thing in imagination. When we're imagining things, we're actually attaching a positive over a negative or a negative over a positive on it, and it becomes a fantasy or a nightmare. If we look very deeply, the second we go back and re-perceive those events, forward or backward, mm-hmm. and bring them into equilibrium, at that exact moment, instead of them being called memory or imagination, we now become present with the experience. We go from imagination to imaging and feeling the presence. And what I found out is, is when we're actually in the moment of equilibrium, we're actually present with that which we want to create in the future mm-hmm. or, or, in a sense, um, experience of the past. And past and future sort of dissolve. I call it prophecy and repacy now. I use a different language. Mm-hmm. And what happens is we're actually in the power of the presence, and that's where we actually manifest things. So any time of seekings and avoidings, and we're not free beings, we're automatons reacting to misperceptions of the past. Mm-hmm. The only freedom we have is if we have a balanced perspective. And so I teach people in the Breakthrough Experience and using the Demartini Method how to do that so they actually feel what it's like to be free of fear and guilt, fear being the future imagined state and guilt being the past remembered state, and actually then inspired and manifesting things. Because we spontaneously manifest things when we don't encloud our minds with fear and guilt. Fascinating. Now, one of the things that I personally uh, know uh, and have experienced uh, in the quantum collapse process and breakthrough experience, uh, and you talked about that, and, and that is when you collapse uh, whatever it is that you are emotionally addicted to or that you're infatuated with, that not only uh, that you are free, but it also sends out... As spooky action in a distance, that mm-hmm. Albert Einstein called it, and entanglement by other writers. Correct. What happens is when we actually do this process, it's quite profound. It doesn't matter where a person is in the world, but instantaneously, whoever we do the process on is affected. And this has been demonstrated in thousands of cases. And so what happens is when we bring our mind back into equilibrium, we started with a misperception about them. We had them on a pedestal or maybe in the pit. Mm -hmm. And when we bring them back into our heart, then what happens, we become present with them, and space and time are dissolved, cause and effect is dissolved, and we actually now, with our power of our intention and our gratitude and love and certainty and presence that results, we literally influence them. They're like a quantum particle that across the world is influenced instantaneously. And what we have is literally an effect. I've attempted to share this with George Bush. Uh, the letter coming back from him is stating that we have everything under control. Of course, he hasn't, but... <laughs> But we've, we've offered this to him as a use in you know dealing with negotiations in foreign countries. Yes, yes. And it is very profound, and it's really highly duplicatable. And uh, I wish I could share it with everybody on the line so they could experience it, but it's very profound. We, we have people that have not talked to people in 11 years or even longer, sometimes 20 years, 28 years, longer even. And um, they do this process, and spontaneously, things like they calling at the end of this process, this person all of a sudden appearing or calling. It's amazing. Mm. And I, uh, I've seen this so many times. It's, uh, it's, it's, it really gets to display the great physics of quantum physics into action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and we're going to talk about how we can get people to experience this uh, a little later in the call because I, I think uh, anyone who is seriously serious about uh, their own spiritual evolution and uh, you know, 
moving beyond their emotional addictions, I think it's just a must for them to go through the breakthrough experience. I haven't found any uh, other science out here that uh, is, is, has been more profound uh, in instant gratification, if you will. For Unfortunately, that's an emotion that I'm addicted to being here on the western uh, coast here. Uh, but you talk about on page 32 of the Breakthrough Experience, you say the bigger and more widely separated the emotional charges, the more intense and profound the tears are when those charges are synthesized. Talk about that, because I experienced that as well. Well, what happens is we have we had a lady who had been through, uh, had been stabbed 18 times, left to die, uh, attempted rape. Um, she had been, I'd say, emotionally charged. And we had the opportunity to do this exercise, this work, uh, in front of 500 people in High Valley Ranch, mm-hmm. uh, California, actually. And it was really profound. She had amazing transformation and was able to take such an event and completely perceive it from a totally different perspective and find out her reflection. Because I, I talk about in the Breakthrough Experience that we all live with reflective consciousness. And mm-hmm. The highest state is reflective, that the seer, the seeing, and the seen is the same. And we see that the things around us are really reflections of our projections. Mm-hmm. And she really owned, she did a magnificent job. She owned it. All the things that this uh, gentleman who attempted to kill her and rape her do, uh, and own all of them, and then end up seeing the blessings and seeing the other side of it. And when she did, she had a very powerful catharsis. There was not one dry eye in the room, the 500 people. And I've seen cases. I've seen another one who is, who is four years old, whose father stabbed um, a pig next door. It was a bizarre thing. And uh, she was end up schizophrenic as a result of it. And we were able to integrate that. So the more extreme the cases, the more profound the transformation. Uh, another lady was uh, stabbed in, in Australia, in Sydney, and left to die at the bottom of her stairs, bleeding. And she was able to do something, even though she had eventually spent five years putting this man in prison, she actually wrote a thank you letter to this person on the transformation that came to her life. So it doesn't really matter what happens to you. It has everything to do with how you perceive it. And the greatest gift you have in life is to not carry the baggage, a burden, but actually to have the liberty of truth and love in your heart. And that's what this process does. It helps it. And the more extreme the emotion, obviously, the more profound the impact. Some of these questions that I'm going to ask you might seem repetitive, uh, and, and I'm coming at you with them because I want as many different perspectives as possible. Uh, on page 35, you said, whatever you don't uh, want to see or appreciate in yourself, you keep attracting into your life until you learn to love it. What do you mean by that? Well, so you literally the keep attracting the, the, the same what I've observed, I went through the large Webster's Dictionary and did some research on personality traits and found out that there's about 4,600-plus traits mm-hmm. that we all have. And in actuality, everyone has them. We're, both, we're always nice, mean, kind, cruel, giving, taking, generous, stingy, uh, you know, all of them. We're, we're both vicious and, vi- and virtuous. We're saint and sinner, as they say. We have everything. Everybody is, in essence, the same, though different in existence. And the hierarchy of our values determine the form in which we express those distinctions. Mm-hmm. So even though you may have, uh, or I may have a trait maybe called uh, stingy, uh, we all have it in different forms. Mine may be with money or maybe with thoughts or maybe with my attention. Somebody else may have it with their affection or maybe with their, their ideas. But we all have every trait. Mm-hmm. And what the method is is basically assisting people in identifying a trait so we have nothing to judge in other people. Because anything that we judge in other people that we're not loving in ourselves and owning in ourselves, 
we attract into other people to help us see that in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we literally draw into our lives any disowned parts until we finally own them, embrace them, and love them. And then we thank the person for bringing those to our surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so really, uh, we don't have command over anything uh, that have emotions. Well, anything we infatuated with or resent, anything we put on pedestals or pits, run us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And anything that we put in our heart, we run. We're a, we're a creature to that which we have emotions about. We're a creator and a manifester to that which we love. Now, something you said interesting in the book, or should I say another thing you said interesting in the book, the breakthrough experience, and that is if you aren't willing to step out and face criticism from the outside, you'll do it internally. Well, what that means is I'd, have, I'd rather have the whole world against me than my own soul. Mm-hmm. And there's a conservation of rejection in all of our lives, and if we don't allow it to be on the outside, it becomes from the inside. And so what we do is we, we think we're going to avoid it, but it ends up from within. Mm-hmm. See, what happens is anytime we get cocky inside and self-righteous inside or mm-hmm. seek elation and support and infatuation from the outside, as I said earlier, the negative part of us is the disowned part trying to whisper to us to try to bring us back into the center. Because anytime we get cocky with ourselves, we attract tragedies, challenges, humbling circumstances, and distracting low priorities to bring us back into equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And anytime we get down on ourselves, we attract comedy and support and pride-building circumstances and high focus priorities to get us back in the center. Nature's just trying to equilibrate us. And so what happens is these, these events that we're attracting into our lives are basically there to help us stay in equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And the people around us are part of that. And so we have to own all those parts, and that's our lesson in life. And and I'm not here to be up. I'm here to be loved. Mm-hmm. And that's the great lesson in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you say as long as you're in a physical body, you're destined to have this duality. So we're not, you know, for lack of a better term, I guess, we're not we're not ever living in sin. We're really living in duality. Well, sin is simply a projection of, of a value system onto you, and whenever you do something that challenges a person's values, and they happen to be maybe fundamentally religious, they may label it sin, which I call silly, ignorant nonsense. <laughs> but but what, what that is, is that means that it challenges their values. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's part of the perfection, because there's never a challenge of our values without somebody supporting it somewhere to keep it in equilibrium. We may not be aware of it, but it's always there. And so what happens is it's designed that way. We're designed to have, in a sense, the challenge and the rejection. And I always say that the challenge, the very person that supports you is really rejecting you because they're assuming that you can't do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And the very mm-hmm. person that's challenging you and rejecting you is actually supporting you because they believe you're tough enough and strong enough to endure. And so really, in nature, nature equilibrates. And I always say that if you really want to make a contribution to the planet, Let's say you want to reach a million people or a billion people or five billion people, whatever. Whatever that number is, if you're not able to embrace rejection by half of them, you're not going to obtain your end. Mm-hmm. And there's great accomplishments embraces both ends, both sides of the poles of the magnets, support and challenge equally. I always say if I – and I have a vision to touch three billion people. I'm at 670 million now but since the last decade. Mm-hmm. And the process of doing it – that I know that at least 300 of those million people are probably rejecting me. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I want to reach the 3 billion, I have to have at least 1.5 billion that are probably challenged by me. You know, any great new enterprise and paradigm that's offered to the world is first ridiculed and violently opposed until it becomes self-evident. I, I, I embrace rejection. That's what makes us strong, and that's what makes us do our homework and make sure we're clear on our message. Wow. Absolutely amazing. Page 62, you talk about the law of greatest efficiency. You say this law tells us that anyone or anything that does not fulfill its purpose automatically decays. 
Well, what that means is that each of us have a hierarchy of values, and whenever we are aligned to those values, we feel meaningful, purposeful, and productive. Mm -hmm. And we're inspired and grateful and loving and certain and present. But what happens is we go around subordinating ourselves to other authorities and inject the values of these perceived authorities into our lives, and then we end up living with imperatives, should, ought to, supposed to, need to, etc. Mm -hmm. When we do, we're trying to go against our own values, and we live with moral dilemmas. And what we do is we end up having, in a sense, uh, emotional distraught inside, which creates signs and symptoms to break our body down, to try to wake us up to be true to ourselves and not subordinate ourselves to outside authority. Mm -hmm. As Nelson Mandela quoted in the Horse and Miracles from uh, Marion Williamson, we serve the world by shining, not shrinking. We're, we're more frightened of our power than our, in our weakness. And so I always say that when we're true to our real nature, uh, we're, we're authentic. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, uh, you know, we, we shine. And what we do is we, we allow ourselves to, to bloom, but what we do is if we inject the values of others and subordinate ourselves to us, we hold ourselves back. Um, you also talk about the, the law of thermodynamics or, or the law that, uh, of conservation that nothing is ever lost. And, you know, that sounds, you know, kind of uh, loopy when you're hearing it for the first time. And so I remember having the conversation with you and challenging you and saying, well, you know, Doc, wait a minute. My parents, you know, passed on when I was 14 years old, so how is it that nothing is lost? And so could you talk about this, this uh, wonderful phenomenon, not phenomenon, this wonderful science of how nothing is ever gained or lost? Yes, in, in the Demartini method, I have a side C that I address that with. I was recently had the opportunity to work with a lady who had her son and husband pass away in the tsunami. She almost drowned, and they did drown. Mm. And I got to work with them live on the radio show uh, before and after. It's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. See what I've learned, and, I, and it's a science. It's not a it's not a maybe. No, it's not. I, 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 this is a science. I, I've been able to take any human being who's been through a death um, to this process. It's quite interesting. See, what we do is when somebody has a death and they have remorse, bereavement, grief, or sorrow, or loss perceptions, it's not the death that's actually doing it. It's their parts that they were addicted to and they were infatuated with. Because nobody ever has a loss or remorse or grief about the things they resented about the person. In other words, nobody ever comes to me and said, I, I, I miss the way they were slobbed around the house. I miss their, their <laughs> gas. I miss their yelling. They always focus on the things that are infatuated with. So anytime they have an addiction to things they're infatuated with an individual and then that person withdraws from them, dies or leaves them, that's when they have the broken heart, remorse, bereavement, grief. And what's interesting is they also have a buried joy over the loss of the things that they are resentful to. So inside the psyche, there's still that balance. And so remorse, bereavement, grief is simply a withdrawal symptom of the addiction to that which we're infatuated with. And when I actually equilibrate those, astonishing and amazing transformations occur because when actually they bring their perceptions back into balance and love the person, they feel the presence of the person, then they no longer have remorse. Mm -hmm. And when you say love the person, it's interesting that you say that because most people will say, well, of course I love this, you know, my husband or my but, wife. But or my see, most people don't know the distinction between the addictive fantasies of infatuation That's and right. love, and they confuse them. They think that, right. in, in, that love and hate are opposites. But the truth is that love is the synthesis of admiration and despise, mm -hmm. like and dislike. Mm -hmm. You know, when you do the marriage vows, you say for richer, for poor, for for you know nicer, mean, or kind or cruel. It's always a synthesis of opposites that make love. But what we've done is we've let the passions of infatuation and compulsive, addictive behaviors confuse us of what love truly really is. Wow. All right, Dr. D. Martini. Let's talk about 
this uh, wonderful book, How to Make One Hell of a Profit and Still Get to Heaven. So we've kind of laid the foundation really on what the quantum collapse process is and, and the breakthrough experience, and we're going to talk about how people can get tuned into that in a moment. But one of the uh, issues that most people have and mo most people want, and if you will, are infatuated with, is uh, not only the achievement of wealth, but the ability to sustain wealth. So what is this concept of how to make one hell of a profit and still get to heaven? Well, I first define um, heaven as a state of gratitude for life. Mm -hmm. And then, because if you're ungrateful, life's hell. Mm -hmm. And when you're grateful, you're present with it. Mm -hmm. But what, what I found is the absolute most significant thing a person can do to transform their financial destiny is to actually discover what their values are. Because whatever your hierarchy of values are, is, is what determines your financial destiny. If your highest value is your children, children's education, children's clothes, uh, socializing, your house, your car, your travels, everything else, and number 16 to 20 down on the list is saving money and building wealth, then what happens is no matter how much money comes in that month into your as your resource, it will automatically be dispersed and the assets will be dispersed according to the values. So what happens is if you double the income or quadruple the income even, you'll just get better clothes, nicer house, nicer education for the kids, and you still won't save money and build wealth. Mm -hmm. So it's not how much you make that counts. It's the hierarchy of your values and the way you manage it that counts. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I go in there, whenever I'm working with people, I identify what their values are. And it's mind-blowing. They go, well, no wonder my life is the way it is. Because mm -hmm. when they actually come into real true contact with what their values are, they realize that they're manifesting their life according to them. And what they've done is they've injected assumed values of others and wonder why they weren't manifesting that, but they didn't realize who they really were. So know thyself, be thyself, love thyself has deeper meaning when you get to the values. Absolutely. And then the other thing is that what they do is because they have not lived up to those values, because they've injected others, they've beaten themselves up, they've gone into a self-raunchous mode, mm -hmm. and uh, they've gone into kind of a shame-blame game, which then breeds further altruism to try to compensate. And they minimize themselves even further to others, which then if they do have money, they tend to think that others are more important than them, and they pay themselves last instead of first. Mm. And wealthy people always pay themselves first. They know that is wise. Because until they invest in themselves and value themselves, they can't expect anybody else ever to. Well, you know, this is absolutely true. And what is, um, I guess, uh, in opposition of that in terms of some people's uh, emotional uh, values uh, with that is that, well, you know, hey, Dr. Martini, what about tithing? Shouldn't I tithe first as opposed to pay myself first? If I pay myself first, isn't that being selfish? Well, you know, I, I, it's amazing. Only the people who are self-depreciating ever con condemn selfishness. <laughs> yeah. I always say that, uh, you know, if you have three people with a hierarchy of values, and the one, let's imagine three columns of values. Mm -hmm. Where on the right, the hierarchy of values shows money way at the bottom. Saving money and building wealth is number 20. Mm -hmm. uh, the middle column has somebody at number 10. And the far left column of values has it at number 1. The person on the right will label the person in the middle as greedy and expensive. Mm -hmm. The person at the top will label that same person as cheap and martyring and inexpensive. Wow. wow. So and generous. So what happens is, based on people's values, they tend to project that. Mm -hmm. Whenever somebody comes up to me and says, oh, Dr. Martini, you know, you're selfish and you're greedy and you're expensive, I say that that is probably all the more reason to buy my book, How to Make One Hell of a Profit. And, <laughs> and then 
then if when you're through with that and you're able to go to the next level of economics because of it, then I encourage you to get my CDs for that. And then when you're done with that and you're ready to go to the further economics, I consider joining me in an actual program for two days so I can show you how to build wealth much more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the person who has a higher value on wealth never says that. They never so uh, condemn a person for building wealth because they know that it's one of the most magnificent mediums of exchange of service for service. Absolutely. It's a spiritual means of exchange. So when it, just to say that it's unwise to, to receive wealth is, is actually misunderstanding what wealth is, mm -hmm. well-being. Mm -hmm. I remember but what happens is tithing, I believe that tithing is designed to be not only for the world on the outside, but also on the world on the inside. And you're a temple, and you're designed to give yourself your tithe, which is your 10% at least, and also then outward in your philanthropic endeavors. Mm -hmm. But just realize that if you give something for nothing to others and rob them of dignity, accountability, responsibility, and productivity, you do not serve them. Mm -hmm. So make sure that when you, you select who you serve with this uh, this tithing, that you actually encourage them to be accountable and to, through education to use that money wisely and not become a dependent. Oh, that is absolutely incredible. Thank you for that, Doc. You know, I remember talking to Mark Victor Hansen. He said something really funny but very profound. He says the best thing that you can do for poor people is not be one of them because poor people can't help poor people. Well, you know, I, I've, I've been down in Africa recently, been down there a number of times, and I've had the opportunity to work in townships and work with people that have nothing. They make maybe $200 a year. I met a 14-year-old boy that was raising 10 of his brothers and sisters in about a 10-by-8-foot shack. Mm by himself working. It was quite interesting. He was actually more resourceful than any CEO I've seen in any company. Mm. Amazing. I mean, I think that if CEOs around the world could see how he organized and used energy in a matter efficiently, it was quite amazing. But um, I had the opportunity to chat with him, and his values, we identified what his values were, mm -hmm. and he saw why he was manifesting this scenario, partly. But his mother and father passed away of AIDS, so he was you know, taking on the parental role. But with his value system, I explained to him that as long as he has the value system he has, he's probably going to be sitting there and perpetuating that in his own brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. So we actually are doing a kind of a pilot with him and actually helping him revamp his perspective and identify what he sees in other people inside himself, the powers, the opportunities, the talents, the skills, and to start paying a portion of whatever he makes, even if it's ever so slight. Because when you start to save money and you start to manage money wisely, you receive more money to manage. Mm -hmm. And already now, this has only been a month and a half to two months, but already he's seen opportunities come from the management of money, and he sees how he can serve his family more effectively by doing so. Now, you talk about money appreciation or wealth appreciation. You say the way to appreciate wealth is by knowing what you're going to... Uh... If they don't know how to manage it. Mm -hmm. And the universe doesn't give you... I always say when you manage money wisely, you get more money to manage. Mm -hmm. And when you manage a position wisely, you get a promotion. So I always say that if you say that you want to have a million dollars or a billion dollars, that it's wise to outline exactly what you want to do with that, how it's going to be allocated, how it's going to be distributed and used. Because a clear vision makes magic. I would say that the vitality of your life is directly proportional to the vividness of the vision, and the master is the one who focuses on ever finer details of the vision. Mm -hmm. And when they become infinitely detailed, they become present with the vision, and they become manifesting it. And this is the power. So absolutely having a clear understanding and vision of what you want to do with your money, I assure you, increases the probability of you attracting it. Now, you, you, you say that you need to know the purpose of money, so it's not just enough to want the money. You really need to know why you, as you said, this million dollars or billion dollars, why do you want it? Yeah, well, the greater the cause, the greater the wealth. Mm -hmm. If I walked up to you, Philippe, and I said, 
uh, look, I'm a little behind on my bills. Can you help me out? You'd probably say, uh, no, thank you, but no thank you. Mm-hmm. If I come up to you and say, well, my college, my son is going to college and I didn't save enough, is, is there any way you can help me? You'd say, well, thank you, but I have my own kids. But if I came to you and I said, uh, and I lived in a suburb in a, in a little area of the town, and I said that two weeks ago a young child walking across the busy intersection to go to the park was killed. And I decided, my wife and I decided, since we had children, that we were going to buy the only lot left on this side of the street and turn it into a park so none of the kids in this neighborhood had to go across that busy intersection and get killed. And we didn't know if you would be willing to help, but we thought that any amount, whether it be a nickel, a dime, a quarter, a dollar, or any amount, if you could contribute so we could build a park for all the children in the neighborhood uh, to keep them from dying, um, would you be willing to participate? Well, now in that case, because it's a cause bigger than ourselves, mm-hmm. there's a yearning of a heart that opens, and people participate in such a thing. Mm-hmm. And so the greater our cause and the clearer our vision, the more we have the probability of acting towards that dream and also manifesting people to support that dream. Um, you, I remember you said something to me years ago that has stuck with me to this day. Uh, you say life does not become easier; it just becomes more accountable. Well, I always say that it's, you know, in Scientific American, about I guess about five years ago, there was a fantastic article on the conservation of difficulty in people's lives. Mm-hmm. That no matter what you do, there's pain and pleasure, and there's ease and difficulty, and there's challenges and sports. So striving for a one-sided magnet in life instead of embracing both sides is a futile and often fatal uh, expression. They found that the increasing number of suicides in teenagers today is because of their addictions to fantasies. And so I always say that it's wise to embrace the two sides of life. And true accountability, just like for an accountant, is one who can bring a balance sheet to their perceptions Mm -hmm. and account for both the assets and liabilities in their perceptions. Mm -hmm. If all you do is focus on assets, you're basically disowning your liabilities, which means your ability to lie. Mm. Very good. Very well said. Uh, You say money is a means of exchange for services rendered in love. Define that. Further define that for us. Well, when you're doing something you love, I just did a program, my seven-day program, and I ended it last night in Houston, Texas, and there was a lady there who says, is there anything you can do that would help me expedite making $10 million? And I said, well, I can tell you right now, here's two things you want to think about. The first thing is you want to identify what you would love to do that's absolutely inspiring that you can't wait to get up in the morning and do. Mm -hmm. Because with that type of vitality and enthusiasm and inspiration, you automatically increase the probability of drawing and magnetizing opportunities and people. The second thing you want to do is make sure you find out what is the greatest number of people needing. You know, when I go around the world and I speak in front of huge audiences, I ask people, how many of you ever used Microsoft Windows? Mm -hmm. And every person just about, except maybe in the rural Africa, have their hands up. And even there, sometimes they put their hands up. Mm -hmm. So when you see 100% or 99% of the people with their hands up, you know why he's a billionaire. Mm -hmm. Because he's obviously found a niche that everybody benefits from. Mm -hmm. So the key is to strategies on how to get that out to people, and then let no one on the face of the earth stop you from that. Mm -hmm. I always say that I'm the vision, God's the power, we're the team, and I will do whatever it takes, travel at a distance, and pay whatever price to bring my services of love to the world. Oh, I love that. You you also talk about... You know, you need to grow wealth, or, or wealth grows literally on the edge of comfort. So you have to, you know, as you say, life becomes more accountable. So we have to become uncomfortable with this contentment that we say, oh, I just uh, want to make enough money to pay the bills. 
Well, the people comfort. that are addicted to comfort are the one most uncomfortable. <laughs> because what good. happens is life won't allow that to occur. You will never have comfort without discomfort. There's mm -hmm. always some part of your life that's uh, challenging you, and that's exactly how it's designed, or otherwise you don't grow. Mm -hmm. If you ever get up in the morning, as, as Norman Vincent Peale said, if you ever get in the morning and you wake up without a problem, get on your hands and knees immediately and pray for one. <laughs> because you're not alive. I always say that the, the magnitude of the, of the individual is based on the challenges that they've mastered. And and so you want that. That's it, it's not about pain, uh, pleasure without pain. It's, mm -hmm. That's part of the game. Well, pain and pleasures are two. As Kipling said, pain and pleasure are the two imposters. Though distinguishable by the senses, they are inseparable in actuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now we talked about this earlier, but as it relates to wealth, is absolutely true. Emotions really destroy wealth, does it not? Well, emotions are what you know, we could call in the marketplace the stock market. They call it greed and fear. I call it infatuation and resentment. But any time we're infatuated, let, let's say we have a, a million dollars or a thousand or a hundred thousand or whatever amount saved in a, in a savings, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the market jumps up five, ten percent, you don't get too elated. If it goes down five or ten percent, you don't get too depressed. Mm -hmm. And you manage it because you're not overly emotional. People can tolerate approximately 20, 10 to ten percent emotions, fluctuations in emotion without reacting. So if all of a sudden you have, let's say, a hundred thousand dollars and it jumps to a hundred and fifty, you'll tend to be elated. You'll tend to do foolish things like go and get other aspects of your money and put out it on margin and, and gamble. And then you'll end up, when you lose it, then you'll lose more than 10%, and then you'll react, and then you'll sell, and you'll be frightened, and you'll lose. So emotions destroy wealth, as Warren Buffett said, and strategies build wealth. And love keeps you centered, and wisdom keeps you strategic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an oxymoronic question. Why is it important for us to find a mentor uh, for creating wealth. Why is this important that we should have some type of coach? Uh, well, just like for a company, if you if you take a company and you have a CEO that's used to making, say, a $10 million to a $100 million company, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden he associates with a board and, and fills a board around him, all with $100 million to billion-dollar companies, the company tends to go up because of the vibrations, the experience, and the resonation of those people that resonate at a higher level. So you can't hang out with people. I always say that if you have $10, you hang out with 10 heirs. If you have $1,000, you hang out with thousandaires. If you have a million, you hang out with millionaires. But if you want to be a billionaire, you got to hang out with billionaires. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, I noticed this with my wife and I, my former wife. You know she passed away. But, mm -hmm. but what happened is, what's interesting is, is we lived in New York, and we just sat there and meditated, and we thought, well, we want to move to another level economically. So we asked ourselves, where in the world could we actually resonate with the wealthier people? We chose Trump Tower. We then got a place in Trump Tower, and we got up on the 62nd floor next door to, to Steven Spielberg and Kenny Rogers and the guy that owns Guest Jeans and mm -hmm. right below Bruce Willis and Sophia Loren, and, and we had some really good placement. Well, that year that we moved in there, our income level went up, and I don't think it was because of anything other than resonation. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved on to the ship a number of years ago, we noticed that on the ship there's 18 billionaires and there's some royalty and there's celebrities and people on there. And when we did that, our money jumped up again. So just by surrounding yourself with people that resonate at higher levels economically, it does rub off. And if you hang out with paupers, as I say, they will tend to make you feel guilty trying to go and raise beyond them. It's, it's like the, the crabs in the bucket. The crabs will all step on top of each other to try to get out, and then the second one just about gets out, they'll all bring them back down again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it's wise to have a mentor. You know, Plato, Aristotle had played money. You want to hang out with people that have a greater understanding than you. It, I guarantee it pays off. Even if you have to pay for it, it pays off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about this ship a little bit because I, I, you kind of mentioned 
mentioned it, uh, we talked about it in the beginning before everyone was on the call, um, and you kind of mentioned it just now in passing, but I really want people to get an idea of uh, the, the kind of lifestyle that you have developed for yourself, that you have attracted into your life and you sustain very well, uh, so that people can get an idea of what to look forward to in terms of uh, whatever it is they wish to accomplish and, and the truest or highest manifestation of their potential looks like. Now, this ship is called the Resident World, is that correct? It's called the, called the World of Residency. The World of Res Residency. And just on a luxury cruise. Uh, this ship is uh, a luxury cruise on steroids, if you will. Well, what the, the ship is, is it's 110 mansions on it. They, they range from small, you know, condominiums to up to 7,400 square feet uh, beautiful homes, up to about $19 million homes. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're very luxurious. And there's about 110 people that own, and then there's some guests that come on and friends that come on. And uh, it basically circumnavigates the planet, and it goes where we decide to take it. And it just we, we stop at ports, and we get off, and we sightsee, or we adventure, or we meet great people, or we have uh, exotic uh, dinners, or whatever it is. I mean, and, and what it is, it's quite luxurious. It's got five five-star restaurants, one Michelin-rated star uh, restaurant, and um, it's got, you know, a golf course. It's got tennis courts. It's got uh, a spa. It's got a theater. It's, got, it's like a city, a floating city. Absolutely. And uh, it's magnificent people. I mean, truly magnificent people live on there. I was really astonished at how gracious they were and how friendly. And it's like one big family. And I don't, I'm not on there every day because I'm traveling and I'm speaking. But when I'm on there, it's it's quite uh, inspiring. I've been blessed to be able to speak on there, and it's a great group to speak to. Mm -hmm. And you've, I've met some amazing people, truly amazing people, uh, living on the voyage of this, uh, this this lovely place. Now, is it a misnomer that, uh, uh, you know, some people believe that, you know, wealthy people at that level, at that point of observation, uh, are arrogant and snotty and snooty? Where does that come from? How do you well, respond to that? Well, if you treat people, you know, and challenge their values, anyone would be. But I wouldn't say that anybody on there is any more than any human being I've met. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I thought that that might be the case when we first got on, but I was astonished at how open and friendly they were. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these people are very significant people on the planet, and they they're just as gracious as they can be. In fact, I was in, um, I think I was in Cape, no, I was in uh, Johannesburg the other night, and um, I was actually typing away on my computer in the the uh, club lounge, and all of a sudden one of my buddies from the ship were there. He was in there. He has he owns some mining down there, and you know some. Well, I'm not sure exactly all the mines he has, but he's got a bunch of mines. And basically, he was sitting there, and he says, John, I said, oh, my God. And then we ran into each other there. So, you know, we meet each other in different places, and they're lovely people. I really am astonished at uh, how gracious the people are on there. Now, one of the things you say in, the, in How to Make One a Hell of a Profit and Still Get to Heaven is you say we should get books on wealthy people. Why should we do that? Well, I believe it's wise to read the biographies of great people in any field, uh, definitely in the economic field, I would say you cannot put your hand into the pot of glue without some of the glue sticking. So, too, you cannot put your mind into the great immortal messages and biographies and ideas of great people without it sticking. Mm -hmm. So if you read the biographies of wealthy people, you'll see reflections of your own life and realize, my God, if they can do it, so can you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're going to open up the lines of uh, communication here in a moment and allow people to ask some questions and have some comments. <clears throat> but I'd also like to ask you, 
in the book how to make one hell of a profit and still get to hell. Well, what that means, you know, when I first started my speaking career professionally, mm-hmm. I've been speaking since 18, seven, you know, yeah, 18, I guess was the actual dates I started to speak. My first student <laughs> was a lovely lady who leaned down on me. She was about 400 pounds, leaned down on top of me and said, she said, can you teach me yoga? <laughs> I started with a, I spoke for three hours at the end at one or two $10 bills. I said, minimum of donation, 20 bucks, And again, one or two $20 bills. <laughs> and finally I said, you know, the heck with this. My altruism is waning. I'm starting to get a little narcissistic here. <laughs> and I realized my hidden agenda was not worth it. It was wiser to just be upfront about it. Because, you know, if you don't declare what you're worth, no one else will. And I sat down there and I said, minimum fee, 20 bucks. And lo and behold, 85% of the people put a $20 bill in there. And now, all of a sudden, you know, I made hundreds of dollars. I went, oh, my God. That wow. was just, the universe was waiting for me to declare I was worth something. Mm-hmm. And it will never exceed your own evaluation of yourself. So if you don't value yourself, don't expect everybody else to. Mm. This wow. is an important thing. That's why I raise my fee every year. And it's just like clockwork. And every time, my business grows broader across the world because the more I value me, the more the world values me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are online here with Dr. John F. D. Martini, a profound and prolific spiritual master of uh, wealth and manifestation. If you have a question or comment uh, and you have hit six to mute your lines, you may press six to unmute your lines and come on out on the call and, and uh, speak live to Dr. John F. D. Martini. Any questions and comments? Going once, going twice. We've blown them away, Doc. <laughs> well, I hope. I hope. You know, one time I did a, <laughs> I did a uh, teleconferencing call one time. Not the case here. I could guarantee you that it was funny. And, and finally, we got back on about thirty minutes had gone by. And Are you serious? Thirty yeah, minutes? What interest we got back on? And they, 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 we just laughed. It was so funny. Oh God. Well, anyone who has a question or comment, uh, I'm going to ask a, a, a doc I'm to. Uh, oh, hello. Who is this, and uh, where are you calling in from? This is Dr. Flores from California. Welcome. What is your question or comment to Dr. Dean? I actually saw Dr. Martini in San Diego. I don't know if he remembers me. Um, my question is, um, basically... Are you in Huntington Beach? Excuse me? Are you in Huntington Beach? Yes, I am. Oh, good. That's where I used to surf. That's my hangout. Yeah. I give you a uh, postcard uh, with actually a picture. I don't know if you remember me. It was down in San Diego for a philosophy group. Just recently? Uh, about a month and a half ago. Yeah. And you gave a, a, a was it the postcard with you uh, facing away? Actually, no, it was just a picture of, of the sun. And I, it was just a really beautiful picture, and I just decided to give it to you as a gift. You know, I made, if you, how long ago did you give it to me? Because I haven't been in my office for a month or more. Oh, really? It must yeah. have in, in mid-January when it was down there. Yeah, because I was in uh, Australia and Africa and a few other states in, in, in Spain. I don't know if I've gotten to it yet. Uh, okay. Well, um, you know, I've been listening to you know a lot of your tapes and on all that, and um, I've been getting a clear purpose and vision. I'm a chiropractor, and you know, I've been reading about you know defining and refining my mission and whatnot. But I still come across like roadblocks. You know, I, I feel like I have a great vision and, I, and I'm feeling more inspired, but I still can't seem to. It seems like I, I come into roadblocks to, to actually manifesting you know what I want to do. What roadblock are you perceiving? Um, not too sure. It just seems like I, I can't set the goals and be concrete about them. And when you say you want, what, be clear, tell me what your vision is. What do you, what do you say? Because if you're not clear on the vision, then it's obviously a roadblock there. What, what do you see? What do you want to create? Well, I mean, I see myself, uh, you know, 
being a great teacher and healer. And, and, and what does that mean? Well, what does that mean, and what does that look like? We have to get uh, concrete about it. You know, as a chiropractor, I just you know, becoming you know, healing people through love and, and, and gratitude. And, you know, great. What is that? Do you have a number of people you want to serve? Uh, yes. Do you have it outlined and laid out where you see it every day? I mean, I guess that's the that's the part that I'm talking about that I, that I guess I can't. I have the vision, but I can't put it on like you know, materialize it. Make it you know. Well, it, it, the first thing to do is to be absolutely clear on what that mission is. Is it typed up and written out and refined? And, and are you focusing on it, reading it? You know, like I said, you know, I start to to think about it, and get inspired, but I just have the. Well, what what then? That means that somehow it's either not highest on your value. We never procrastinate on things that are highest on our value. We're always focused on that. So something else must be higher on your value than these things. Mm-hmm. What are you keep, focusing on instead? I don't know. I mean, it just. No, you do know. You know exactly what it is. What, what are you spending your day doing instead of that? Pretty much the last two months, I've been I've been just praying and trying to find out what my true mission is. And, and well, you know, I always say start with what you know. If you know you want to bring healing, then you want to ask the question because the quality of our life is based on the quality of the questions we ask. What specifically does that mean? What form of healing? What exactly do you want to do? What exact clients? We want to ask who do we want to serve and get specific on that. Where do we want to serve them? In what fashion and what form and what procedure and how often and exactly what we want to accomplish with that? And you say you want to teach them. Are you you actually being torn between teaching and doing clinical healing? Um, Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I... Could you organize teaching specifically to the patients and organize classes that you can inspire them to come and bring and get clinical healing in addition to teaching them? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like you know, I remember telling you that I had like you know obviously like a phobia of uh, public speaking. So that's kind well, of you know, but you learn to play the flute by playing the flute. If you let the phobia win, yeah. you 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 win. You have to do it. You have to, if, if you walk away from your phobia instead of just confront it, it, it runs your life. So I w- what I would do is I would sit down on a piece of paper tonight or on your computer, and I would define exactly how whatever you do know. If you don't know everything, that's fine, but start with what you do know, and then read it, and then tomorrow look at it again and add to it if there's anything to refine, and make it a commitment that on a daily basis you're going to refine this until it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And then you have to come up with the strategic actions on what it's going to do, because to have a goal and not have the strategic actions to it, it's, it's, it's nebulous. You got to think of what it is, and if you don't know, then you need to either call me or some mentor to guide that through to make sure you have it, because there's people out there that know how to do exactly what you're wanting to do to be able to do healing and teaching. I'm definitely one of them, and a chiropractor. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So if you want me to do that, you call Linda in my office and let's set up a time and let's make sure it happens, because every day you go by not doing it uh, will erode your certainty, and every day you start taking actions on it will build it. And the whole thing is that you know my you know my finances aren't exactly like where I want it to be. So well, they're not going to be until you're actually clear about what it is. Because you know I always say that whoever's clear draws people to them. Mm-hmm. And your practice is not going to do its magnificent uh, job unless you're clearer, because people aren't going to want to be around somebody that's not certain. Yeah, Certainty is part of the healing process. They, they, you magnetize people to you once you're certain and clear about what your intention is. I guess here's the thing, like before, you know, like I wanted to make a lot of money, and my first year in practice, I made, you know, a pretty decent amount for what, you know, for what I set out to do, and it was just about making money, and and I realized that it wasn't there wasn't a purpose and a, and a true mission behind it, and now I feel that more, but you know, so I'm going, you know, 
the other way now. Well, you also want to make sure that whatever that mission that you would love to do is a service to other people because if we project our values and assumptions onto other people and not identify what their needs and values are, um, then what we do is we have a great mission, but it, nobody is interested in it. We have to master the art of communicating what we have that's inspiring to us in terms of what's inspiring to them, and that's an art of communication, and that also is something trainable and doable. But first we need to be clear what it is and clear on who we want to serve and, and start. Do. We're going to uh, take on some more questions and comments, and then we're going to give uh, Dr. DiMartini a chance to give uh, uh, names, numbers of, of uh, how we can get in contact with him <clears throat> so that we can further our lives and, and, and move forward with the breakthrough experience of the quantum collapse process. That would be great. And if I can serve you, uh, Doc, please please give me a call. Call my office number. Okay, yeah, I'll look at that. Because what, I, I'm, I'm certain. I've built a lot of multimillion-dollar chiropractic practice, and I'm certain I can help you. <laughs> what uh, is your uh, – uh, uh, how can one get in contact, uh, contact with you, Dr. DiMartini? They can call simply in, – in the United States or Canada, they can call 1-888-DiMartini. 1-888-DiMartini. At D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. And what is the web address as well? And and the web address is www.drdmartini. Dr. Dr. D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I dot com. Fantastic. And the other number is 713-850-1234. And Linda, Linda Tony. Linda Tonini. Linda Tonini is the is the uh, contact person there, my, my sweetheart. I love her so much. She's so so great. Yeah, she's a fireball. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> Any other questions and comments for Dr. John F. Martini tonight? I have a question. And Please. who is this and who's calling in and where are you calling in from? Hi, I'm, my name is Pat. I'm in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Pat. Thank you. Hi, Pat. I missed part. I missed the first part of your call, and I apologize. I'm a little embarrassed to ask you this, and I've been wanting to ask someone, but see, a little embarrassed. What ha- um, I actually do not have a clue as to what I want to do or what I can do. Mm. I'm 64 years old. I kind of lived a life of, of drifting, you know, drifting through life, doing this and that and whatever. Um, when I made my uh, put my mind to something, I've usually been able to create it. But I find myself. Uh, now, at the age of 64, uh, taking care of an aged, uh, ailing mother, I really want to to know, have a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to determine that purpose. When I was a kid, I, I had them, but I'd forgotten. All right. First of all, your voice does not sound 64 years old. You sound like you're in your 30s. <laughs> That's Thank absolutely you. right. I was blown away when you said 64. I said, that, voice, that sounds like somebody, somebody in their 30s wanted me. But, um, I actually look very young, young too, for my age. Well, that's great. Congratulations. Yes, it is. Let me just say this: that that right now, in the hierarchy of your values, apparently your mother and her health uh, is high. No, it's I, I, you know, I, I, there's nothing noble about this at all. I inherited it by default. Well, just, I know, but, but even even if you inherited by default, if you're doing it, then obviously things that are more important to you are not overriding it. Obviously, you don't see alternatives. Absolutely. Uh, okay, okay, so let me just explain something to you. So, so let me. Okay. Okay. First of all, everyone inside them knows their mission. It is inherent inside the heart. It is there. It never goes away. It it is intuitively and inspiringly trying to surface. But there's seven things that stop it from surfacing that cloud it over. And let me go through those. Okay. The first one, I don't know if you can write all this so quick, but just get the idea and then you can write afterwards. The first one is the fear 
of breaking perceived morals and ethics by some perceived authority. Got it. So in other words, we're afraid that if we go do what we really, really love to do, that we would be considered bad or wrong or, or non-spiritual. Pardon me? Our people, on people we care about won't love us. They, well, that's, the, that's another one, but let me do the first one. The oh. fear of being, re, that fear that we're going to break the morals and ethics of some spiritual authority, that's one. The second one is we're afraid to admit to ourselves what we really love to do is because we are afraid that we don't have the mental capacities or the knowledge or the skills or the degrees to fulfill it. The third thing that stops us from being able to see and hear what that, that inner voice is saying is the fear that we will fail at it. And if we go and do it, well, we'll fail, and I'd rather not fail, so I'll just stop doing it or not do it. The next one is the fear of we won't make money at it. We'll either bankrupt, we'll lose our money, we'll go backward financially. The fourth thing is the fear that we will lose loved ones, respect from loved ones or spouses or children or parents. We'll lose loved ones. And this is apparently one that you've got entangled a little bit with. The next one is the fear of rejection. What will society think if I go do what I really love to do? We're afraid of what somebody out there that we've given perceived authority to will think. And the last one is the fear that we won't be able to have the, the, the body or the looks or the strength or the stamina or the energy or the vitality to do it. We're afraid that we might not have the energy or life to do it. These seven fears compound each other and then block us, and then we're afraid to admit to ourselves what we really love to do. And what we do is we become immobilized by them, and then we just stay in our, in our same position, and then to say to ourselves, well, that must be important because I really don't know. But the truth is we know inside. And deep down inside, you've known what you love to do, but what happened is those things are surfacing and clouding it. Mm -hmm. If all of a sudden you knew you had the mental capacities, you knew you would succeed at it, you knew you'd make money at it, you knew that your loved ones would go, wow, you did it. You knew the society would embrace it and would actually support it and refer people to you. You knew you had the vitality to do it, and you knew that spiritually it was congruent with your highest values. You do it, and you declare what it is. So somewhere in there you know those things. So maybe tonight go through there and, and go inside and write maybe 50 things that's coming to your mind and find the common threads of it. And I assure you that some of the things you've done in your life in the past are all parts of leading you to whatever it is that you want to do next. But I assure you that if you're doing that for your mom, you can, as a service to her, find somebody to delegate that to who loves doing that so you can get on with doing higher party things. Because any time you do things that are not inspiring to you, you break yourself down and you join her in a health problem. Wow. I understand that. Um, unfortunately, well, you know, and, and I'm not making excuses, uh, finances do not dictate that I could do that at the moment. Yeah, but wait a minute now. If you go out and produce more than the cost of the person doing the service to assist you, uh, you have the finances. There's a daily, a daily action or even a monthly or a quarterly action that's wise to do is to look at what you are doing, prioritize it, and make sure you're doing highest priority things and delegate and hire people to do the low priority things. Or otherwise you stagnate yourself instead of grow it. You can. What you want to do is you want to find out how you can at even 64. I know a gentleman at 72 that started a new consulting and speaking business at 72, retired after seven years. It can be done. I, 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 I have no problem with the age. I mean, I really don't. Well, you, then what you want to do is you want to look at what service you could provide to people and how you can get rewarded financially for it and then help pay somebody to help you with it. Okay. All right. Thank you. thank you, Pat, for that question. Thank and you, Pat. Thank you, thank Doc, for that uh, wonderful uh, uh, explanation. Those seven uh, fears were absolutely profound. Um, any other questions and comments for Dr. John F. Martini? Hello? Can I have a question? Yes. Who is this and what, where are you calling in from? 
Hi, this is Jolina in Colorado. Hi, Jolina. Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing great. Good. Um, I'm working on a new business and am drawing people in to help me with this. My question has to do with confidentiality agreements, and I'm struggling between um, finding the balance between talking too much and, and dissipating the energy between two and at the same time feeling a little neurotic and not wanting to tell very much in case somebody else runs away with the idea. So can you give me a little bit of advice on how to think about this differently? On your new business. Very good question. Uh, well, normally what they do on confidential agreements, they um, are selective in who they communicate with. They have them sign confidentiality agreements in advance, um, and they uh, do it in stages. They let them know a little piece. If they seem to be truly intrigued and can truly uh, serve or assist in that objective, we let them know a little bit more, and you just work your way up until you reveal the things that, that they could run with and to have them sign a confidentiality agreement. Any great idea uh, can be done that way, and that's I have a friend that does that on a regular basis. He doesn't share any of his great ideas without doing that. Absolutely. Because he's had two or three of them taken like that. <coughs> they turned out to be very, very wealthy ideas. Mm -hmm. So if you have a great idea like that, be selective in who you do. Uh, gradually introduce it to them. Test their, their uh, you know, li reliability. And until then, have those agreements. How would you test their reliability? Uh, what you do is if you you know have a conversation with them, find out what their values are, find out their needs, find out their experiences, and don't give them the details. And then when you find out that they may be receptive or aligned somewhat to your values and, and what your objectives are, then you say, I'd like to reveal something to you and share something with you, but I'd have to have you sign a confidentiality agreement beforehand. And if you were to gain rapport with them, uh, they, they should not have any problem with that. And then you've got yourself covered. Okay, thanks. That's helpful. I think that's a wise thing. I, I have a, a tomorrow morning at about 10:45. I have a, a group of people that are working on a project uh, in that very same manner, and that's exactly what I plan on doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> now, Doctor, you're going to be on the West Coast. Uh, you're going to be in San Francisco April 1st doing a breakthrough experience. Uh, could you talk about that and how people can get involved in that? It's a two-day event. Is that correct? Yes, I'll be doing it at, uh, I believe, the Westin in San Francisco and at the airport on April 1st and 2nd. And all they have to do is contact. Um, that that number eight 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 Dmartini or the website drdmartini.com and uh, in comments for Dr. John F. D. Martini. Mario from Connecticut. Welcome, Mario. Hi. Um, I'm a more I, I, I am a motivational, inspirational uh, personal trainer. I'm very successful at what I do. I have a high caliber of clients. Uh, however, my client I, I want to expand the uh, my my network. Um, I want to be nationwide, and my biggest problem is, is being in personal training uh, and in life coaching, uh, people get attached to you, and I want to find a way to um, duplicate uh, my efforts. Okay, Mario. Uh, the first thing I do is, is I'll make the statement that we only make a difference in ourselves if we have a vision as big as our family. We only make a difference in our family if we have a vision as big as our community. We only have a make a difference in our community if we have a vision as big as our city. The same for our city if we have a vision as big as our state. If we want to make a difference in the state, be number one in the state, we have to have a vision as big as our nation. And if we want to have a national influence, we have to have a global vision. And to make a global influence across the world, we have to have an astronomical vision. So what you may want to do starting is actually go ahead and expand your vision and be really clear on what you want to do across the globe. That's number one. Uh, and where do you want to go and who do you want to work with and be very specific on the people, the places, the things, the ideas and events on that. The second thing is if you're going to have to duplicate yourself, 
either you're going to make, give more accountability procedures to the clients and give them specific things that they can do that make them accountable, checklists, accountability stats, and things that start to wean them from you. The next thing is to consider taking the person who's been most accountable to what you have said and consider about having them part-time assist in uh, playing out, in a sense, that role and maybe weaning yourself into doing higher-priority things, and maybe you can give them a job description and actually enroll them into helping you. Because the ones that are most successful from your work, which I'm sure you have many, would be willing to probably part-time assist you and, if possibly, full-time assist you. And the second they free you up from doing the lower-priority ones, you can get on free to go out and market yourself on a bigger level. And I am certain from what you can do by your voice and your mannerisms and your certainty that that's the next step. Right. Yeah, I created a referral network in the sense of a, a same fee, and you haven't raised in a while, you end up having people that are just Klingons instead of uh, grow-ons. <laughs> I like I, that. I, I raised it every two months. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Because if you do, you know, sometimes you've got to be confronted with you and say, no, you're going to get this done. Here's your accountability sheets. When I put accountability sheets in people and make them accountable like that, um, and I get them down to a shorter time frame uh, of, of time, you know, consulting with them, they do more. They get more done. Otherwise, they, they're into conversations instead of actions. I totally agree. Thank you, John. Thank you, Thank Mario, you. for that. I have one more question for you, Dr. John F. D. Martini, as we close down our, our, our evening together here. And it's a very radical, uh, shocking, if you will, uh, principle that you, you offer in how to make one hell of a profit and still get to heaven. And that is um, making or writing an appreciating le appreciation letter to our debtors. Well, I always say that anybody we owe money to are stockholders in our vision. Mm -hmm. And anybody who has loaned us money, we want to honor. Because in actuality, that money is basically somebody who agreed with the investment, and you want that to, to continue. So anytime you have to write a check to a debt, uh, I want you to convert that perception into a thank you. See them as stockholders. See yourself as a giant company building a global network, and see them as the initial uh, seed capitalist. Mm -hmm. And then what you want to do is you want to break the amount of debt you have into smaller chunks. And so let's say your annual, let's say you owe $100,000 and you're paying $1,000 a month, and you break that down per week, that's 250 a week. You break that down per day, that's $50 a day. You break that down per hour, that's uh, 6 bucks an hour. And then what you do is you, you convert that amount over to units of service or products that you sell. And then what you do is once you've converted it over, let's say you do a service, you sell a product for $100, Obviously, $6, you sell two units a day, $100, that means it's basically six of, of two units, $200. Mm -hmm. It's a small percentage of units. So what you do is you basically convert your debt into service and focus on service. If you focus on service and convert it over to how many units of service to sell to pay the debt, your service goes up and your debts go down. Always convert debt into service and focus on service, not on debt. Because if you focus on debt, service drops. Absolutely. So thank your, thank your people that you owe money to. They're your seed capitalist. Focus on the service, and the debt just melts away. If you focus on how bad the debt is and get all bummed out about it, then obviously you're, you're saying to yourself that you're distracted by that instead of focusing on serving people. Dr. John F. D. Martini, how blessed am I? How blessed are we that uh, we were able to wake up this morning and have you as a blessing, your wisdom and knowledge in our lives? Um, what, what do you have next coming out? What are you up to? 
Uh, oh, God, lots of things. We we have an infomercial that's coming out here in the next few weeks. We've got uh, new CDs for children coming out. We've got two new books, one called The Heart of Love, From Sexual Fantasy to Lasting Fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got the Count Your Blessings book coming back out in English in different countries. There's just so many things going on, Philippe, that uh, I, I'm blessed. I, I believe that uh, since I was 17 years old that I've set a mission to, to you know, share and step foot on every country of the face of the earth and share my heart with people. And every day I'm, I'm just working on it. That's that's my focus, and, and I'm blessed to see the manifestations of that every day. Fantastic. My friend, I will see you April 1st, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in Frisco. And uh, many blessings until we talk then. I thank you, and thank everybody for being on the the, uh, the telephone tonight. I hope that I was in service to you, and uh, and I hope that I get to meet you in person someday. So thank you, Philippe, and I love you, and, and thanks for doing what you do. Absolutely. God bless everybody. I'll talk to you soon. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.